What's up, everyone? Happy Easter weekend to all of you, and welcome to another episode of the Fatherhood Podcast. Welcome to episode 20, the dub episode. It, it is amazing to me that um, I have been able to somehow keep this thing going for 20 episodes, but I'm excited about it. Um, it's going well, and I'm glad that you, the listeners, are still still rolling with me uh, thus far, and I hope you continue to do so. On today's episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with a good friend of mine, um, Mr. Greg Roberts. Greg is is uh, currently going through um, cancer. He was diagnosed, uh, I believe, late last year, and he's been going through the chem- chemotherapy process and all that stuff that goes with it. Um, so I wanted to sit down and have a conversation with him about that process, you know, the, the toll that it's taken on his body, and how during that process he has been able to still maintain his faith, um, his upbeat spirit, and also how he has dealt with this from a father's perspective. So I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. I'm Jamar Hudson, and this is The Fatherhood. Welcome to The Fatherhood Podcast. I'm your host, Jamar Hudson, and you're in The Fatherhood. As a new member of The Hood, my goal is to use this podcast as a platform to talk about my journey as a new father. Part therapeutic, part informative, part educational. My goal is to talk about everything, from adjusting to getting no sleep, to changing diapers to just hoping I get everything right. This podcast will be a space to share with you the joys, challenges, and fears of being a first-time father. Well, first of all, man, let me just ask you, how are you doing? How are you feeling? It depends on the day. I mean, you know, it's it, it's um, I would say for the most part, if I had to like compare my struggle or my journey with others that I've seen, that I probably have like the lighter side of this thing. You know what I mean? Because hmm. my, my 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 prognosis was really good from the very beginning, and and uh, the specifics of my diagnosis were very mild. So. Um, it was kind of like, yay, we caught it in time type of thing. But it didn't it didn't negate the fact that the treatment course that I had to do was still what I had to do. You know what I mean? So, and that's the part that kind of like, you know, makes you sick. Right. Because I didn't, I mean, I wouldn't have known that anything was wrong, honestly. <laughs> I would not. I just, I mean, it was just time for my physical for the year. Was though there were no no symptoms, no nothing that was out of the ordinary. Uh uh-uh. uh. No, I mean me, my brother, and my sister, we get tested every five years. We get screened every five years because our father passed away from colon cancer at forty nine. So um because he died so young and he was terminal at the time of his diagnosis. <clears throat> We all had to, you know, there was a certain marker by which we were all supposed to start getting colon screens. So the first one I had was about five years ago. I was 38. Because I think the formula is like, you're supposed to get a colonoscopy. Like, all right, so if you, if you have a parent who was diagnosed, you take whatever age they were at diagnosis, subtract 10, and then that's the time that you should start getting screened. So since my father was diagnosed at 48, I started getting screened at 38. So it was good that you were you were aware of this, man. You had that education and knowledge. A lot, not a lot of people know that, know their family's history and know what to look for, know what to do. 
Yeah, that, well, that's the biggest part, honestly. Um, you know, and, and this is black. Uh, this is a black family thing. I really think is you know we as you know we don't really talk about mm-hmm. illness or the specifics of it. You just know somebody's sick. All right, that is sick. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. kind of it. Um, but knowing family history is what saves lives as it relates to colon cancer because by the time that you have a symptom with colon cancer, it's too late. Your chances are, if you have a symptom, you're stage four already. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you want to catch it before mystasis. So, so you having that knowledge worked in, in your advantage. Yeah. But it was all like a shock for me because, I mean, like I had gotten the screen. The first screen came back completely clean. They were like, all right, see you in five years. So, you know, I went the next five years living life and doing what I had to do. And my I went in for my annual physical and my primary care was like, all right, it's time for you to have another screen. I was like, okay. So that was like going into the summer, I think. and Of, of 2018. Yeah. And so... I didn't even think anything of it, really. I mean, I was like, you know, I did. I didn't move right away with scheduling it either, and so it was just like, okay, well, I know it's time. I'll get it done before the year is out. So it was. It wasn't until what thanks the week of Thanksgiving that I actually got in to have the screen done, and that 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 wasn't didn't really bother me. You know, the only thing. About the, that part is, you know, having to fast and you can't eat and you got to, you know, clean your system out. That whole part of it is annoying. But, you know, there's nothing painful about it because you're asleep for the procedure itself. Um, and they woke me, he, the doctor woke me up and was like, all right, we found something. And I was like, well, okay. I didn't think anything of it still because, I mean, 96, I think they say 96% of <clears throat> polyps that are found are nothing. Like not cancerous at all, so mm-hmm. I was like, okay. Well, I knew that the I knew what I had going on in terms of the family history, but I was like, well, you know, um, I think I'm pretty good. Like I don't have anything to like really worry about. I'll just go ahead and he said he so he told me from the very beginning I had to have surgery, so I knew that. Um, during that colonoscopy, they took a a biopsy, and I knew that, and then. He was like, so we so we biopsied the mass. It was too large for us to remove during the colonoscopy. So you're going to have to have a surgery to have that taken out. So I knew that from the beginning. And then he was like, we're going to send this and we'll let you know what your biopsy results are. So I was like, okay. So at that point, it was nothing I could really do except go into Thanksgiving and just wait because um, I had to wait for the biopsy results to come back. But then while I was waiting for the biopsy results to come back, I get a call from a radiology lab that's like your doctor has ordered a full body ct scan for you then i think i think it was at that point that i probably started to get scared a little bit because i'm like all right well why are you ordering staging imaging if i don't have like if you haven't even told me that i have a positive biopsy so i was like well why is he ordering these tests is he ordering these tests because he already knows that there's something there or is he just ordering these tests because this is just how he does it I had no way of really knowing. I just had kind of had to just wait. So I went in, had the full body yeah. CT done, and then I had to just wait for the appointment where they were going to share all those results with me at the same time. So 
fast forward to what December 11th and I'll go in to the office and he's like, all right, well, you know, um, the biopsy came back negative. There's no, we didn't find any cancer cells in the biopsy. I'm like, okay, well, that's good. And he was like, you know, and your CT scans came back and there's no spreading. It's just the mass that I found. There's nothing more. There's, you know, no spreading to any other organs. I was like, all right, that's good. But he just kept saying over and over again. So, you know, just keep a positive attitude. And I'm like, well, why are you telling me that? Like, you tell, you, you're telling me that there's no cancer cells that you found. You're telling me that there's no spreading. Of course I have a, a positive outlook right now. Like, why wouldn't I? So I just asked him, I was like, so after I have the surgery, then I'm done, right? And he was like, well, we hope so. And at that point, I was like, all right, so... So you know something's not right. Well, I mean, I was, I still wasn't really sure. I mean, because like, they, they were like, you know, I guess guesstimating what it could have been um maybe colitis or some some type of other gastrointestinal type of something but i didn't have any symptoms of any of that so it, i didn't have any symptoms of anything and so that didn't even make sense so it was just really now a matter of now there's nothing i can do except wait for surgery for the major surgery but then to take this whole thing out and then tell me what it is so that was from December 11th to I had surgery on January 11th, I think. Yeah, January 11th. And so I went in the hospital for that, like, what, four days or so. Came back, and the very next day after they had released me, I got the call from my oncologist saying that it was, they were 100% positive that it was stage three. Uh, colon cancer. Now that's a, that shocked me because I was like, "How did we get to three? Like I had a clean screen five years ago." So I'm like, "So how do we get from a clean screen to stage three in five years?" Because I kind of resolved in my mind that, "All right, I know what my family history is. If they come back and say it's stage one or two, I'm kind of prepared to deal with that." I wasn't prepared to deal with you had to be on chemo. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that was that was the part that was like that was right, a game changer. Yeah, because it was just like that. That means that this is like no way over anytime soon. <laughs> so, um, but I mean, even then, I mean, even with that, I kind of got blessed with with even that part of it because I'm on a I'm on a protocol that only lasts three months, so I don't even have to be on it for six for that for the average six months like most people. Well, Greg, let me let me before we go too far, man. I want to make sure that our listeners know who I'm talking to. Uh, Greg Roberts is joining me on episode 20 of the Fatherhood Podcast. So Greg, before we continue your story, just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. I'm Greg Roberts, originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, I am what the oldest of three children. Uh, grew up in Philly all my life until I left Philadelphia to go to Virginia to for college at Hampton University, and so. Um, what am I? I'm a, I'm a writer. Uh, some would say a recording artist. Uh, background. No need to be humble, man. <laughs> background vocalist. I've uh, traveled and done music professionally since I was ten. Um, and so travel internationally since I was ten. Uh, doing various genres from classical, gospel, R and B. You know, I've done a little bit of of everything, I guess. 
Um, and then the, I guess the academic side of me, I'm a, I'm a <laughs> licensed psychotherapist, uh, school psychologist working in the District of Columbia. So I um, spend most of my time writing psychological evaluations for uh, kids in the special education system. Awesome. And you're also a husband and a father. So tell us a little bit about your family. Personal side. Uh, yep. I'm the husband of one wife and I've only had one. <laughs> um, and I have two kids. My my kids are Christian, who is 13, and Blythe, she's four. My wife and I have been married for 15 years, going on 16 years, and we met at Hampton. University. And Greg, you know, one of, one of the questions I always ask all of my guests um, who come on the show with me is, what does being a father uh, mean to you? Oh, um, I guess in, in this, in the, the world is so negative right now. Um, so I guess the, the thing that fatherhood means to me or where I value it most is it's my opportunity to mold and model uh, good uh, I guess good, not just good behavior, but uh, good decision making, um, good emotional control, uh, um, just just the things that we are starting to see less and less of in society, being able to instill those things in my children so that through them, I can have my impact on society. So going back, Greg, um, to the point you're making, you find out in January, you call, stage three colon cancer, sh- shock to you. So, so let's pick it up from there. You know, you find that news out. What, what are some of the emotions uh, that are going through your mind at that time? Honestly, I don't know if I had many emotions at all. And this is, I know it's going to sound strange coming from uh, a mental health clinician. Mm-hmm. Everything that I thought about concerning my diagnosis was more so logistics. It was about how is this going to impact the household? How is it going to impact finances? How is it going to impact my ability to continue working? Um, You know, all those things. I didn't really emotionally process it at first. So you immediately went into husband, father, leader of the household mode. Yeah, I mean, after I had that first little emotional like, wow, this is what this is. Then that's where it went, you know, and this is where I, like, I'm talking about the day that I got the phone call. This is where my mind was because I had to like go through the whole day. That, that's so like that, that was the first day that I was actually home from the hospital. Mm-hmm. Which, that was the first day and my wife actually went back to work. And so I got the phone call at like 10 in the morning. <clears throat> I wasn't going to call her at work and give her that news. So I was going to just let her go through the whole day. So I, in in my mind, that was my whole time of that whole day to kind of figure out, all right, so how am I going to tell her? How am I going to tell the kids? And it was, and what do I do about all of these things that are more so logistics and don't really have anything to do with emotionally processing the diagnosis? So why do you think your mind went there first, you know? Um... I don't know. I mean, just because, you know, I think every married couple and every family has their ups and downs. You know what I mean? They're, they're, and I'm talking about from a financial perspective. Mm-hmm. And we've, you know, as over the last over 15 years, we've had our fair share of highs and we've had our fair share of lows. And I think that once your lows get too low, 
you your main focus is to not return there again. And so I think that in my mind, it was like, all right, what do I need to do to make sure that we are that we stay financially stable if in the event that they're like, you can't work? Have they told you that yet? Or you that's just where your mind went? That's where my mind went getting the diagnosis, mm-hmm. not knowing anything about what my treatment state of steps would be. I did all at, at this point, when I'm processing, all I have is you have stage three, you're gonna have to have chemo. That's the information that I have. Um, but I don't have any details or any specifics. I haven't had any appointment with any appointments with any doctors, which was soon to come because I mean pretty much after that. I had a whole team of people following me now. Yeah. So, um, so the doctor's appointments are plentiful. Like I felt like a senior citizen. <laughs> I'm 42, and honestly, I, I would be in my I would be in my doctor's offices. Like I know I'm the youngest person. Yeah. Like everybody else was clearly visibly retirement age, and then me. <laughs> so how did how did you deal with that? I mean, mentally, I mean, that had to mess with you a little bit too. Honestly, I thought that was hilarious. I thought that yeah. was funny. Yeah, I mean, and I, my sense of humor gets, can get kind of dark at times, or whatever. But like that to me was hilarious. I was to sit there and kind of just laugh at myself, like, "Wow, you would be the only nigga sitting here." <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sitting there on my lunch break, like, "I wish y'all would hurry up," and everybody else is just sitting there, like, "Right, I don't got no place to Take go." All the time Take you need. All- <laughs> All the time you need. Um, so that 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 part was 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 funny to me. Um, but you know, I think as as it sunk in, I, I guess that the biggest thing for me was having to tell my son Blythe. I wasn't really too worried mm-hmm. about because she was too young to really for a convert for any pre conversation that makes sense. Other than Daddy has to go to the hospital. Right. You know, she's only four. Uh, like, well, do, why you have to go to the hospital? Oh, something's wrong with your tummy. Okay. So, all right. So something's wrong with daddy's tummy and he has to go to the hospital. And really at that point, that's all she really feels like she needs to know. <laughs> you know, be, being a four-year-old. Um, with my son, who is 13 and in the eighth grade, about, about to be in high school in a, in a blink of an eye, um, it required a little bit more processing from an emotional perspective because I know him. Like, he... He will say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm good, but won't really be all the way good. So so as a father about to have this important conversation with his son regarding your health, how did you approach? Did you just go in you know, without preparing or did you just kind of think about how you wanted to present this to him? Because this is serious. Um, there was a little bit of preparation, I would say. And what I did was I... I my wife and I, we decided to combine some, we we had to combine some bitter with some, with this, combine the sweet with the bitter. And so what we did was we, <laughs> I don't want it to sound like a bribe either or whatever, but it, it was something I knew he would really want Um, from my travels in, in music and the things that I've done. I'm blessed to have connections with people who are pretty, you know, well-known artists or for lack of a better way of saying it, they, these these folk are just people who are famous, mm-hmm. and and so um, <laughs> I have a friend who is a drummer, um, who I knew uh, coming up in Philly. We both traveled with Ty Tribbett back in the day, and but he ultimately ended up being like you know drummer for like Lady Gaga and um, 
the the list of artists who he's played for is just it goes on and on and on. But um, and so he's actually one of my son's favorite drummers. <clears throat> and so what we did was we uh, gave him a late Christmas gift, and we told him about the diagnosis, but then paired it with the late Christmas gift of Spanky, his favorite drummer, is going to come here and give him private le- a private lesson in our house. Mm-hmm. So that was how we were able to kind of like balance it out, <laughs> I guess, a little bit. And that that softened the initial blow. Now, processing it as time went on, like that's us telling him, you know, and that's after the first surgery, not knowing that a second surgery was coming, you know, that there were other things that kind of happened that required us to have to manage him and his response to everything as things went on because and that you weren't aware of at the time right because see i i had the first surgery all seemed to have gone well um despite the fact that you know the diagnosis was what it was but it all seemed to have been going well in the healing process and all went well during the surgical procedure itself but then all of a sudden i just was not getting better um and i was having pains that were not that should not have been occurring and then toward the end of like it was like almost three weeks after my first surgery i was started vomiting and they were like no you need to come in so i went into the emergency room sat there forever and um they readmitted me and actually that emergency room check-in stay was the longest stay i had um i had three hospital stays all together but that was the longest because there were two teams of doctors going back and forth trying to figure out what exactly was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what it ultimately ended up being was that I had formed what they called the hematoma <clears throat> at the surgical site where they had operated the first time. And that hematoma got infected with E. coli. Wow. <laughs> I was like, the devil is really trying to kill me. Like, like, <laughs> I'm like, like it's, if all of it wasn't enough already. Yeah. The nurse looked at me. She's like, because they they came in, they said some fancy word. And I was like, all right. So she was like, all right. So I'm gonna break this down to you. What they just told you have well, that's E. coli is what it is. Just basically, if you want to hear, you know, a layman term that you can identify, that's what the the bacteria that they found or whatever. So now. They had to, they put me on an antibiotic IV for, where I was giving myself antibiotic infusions every day for two weeks. He sent me home with that IV stuff, and I'm doing this every day. Still not getting better. Um, Pains are still exactly what they were before. I still keep spiking fevers, crazy stuff. They were like, you need to come in and we need to operate again. So when they operated the second time, they removed the hematoma, and then essentially what they had to do was a second colon resection. So they ended up taking more of my colon out the second time so that they could get rid of the infection. Wow. And so this whole process, I guess, was kind of exaggerated by that hiccup, by that whole infection hiccup. And it's just stuff that happens. They, they tell you, you know, it, it was all part of the surgical risk that they go over before you have a procedure, you know. Um, 
They just didn't expect it to happen and not to happen with somebody my age. So how concerned were you um, to not let Christian, more so than Blythe, because, you know, like you said, she didn't really understand really what was going on. How concerned were you for to not let them see you sick, throwing up and that sort of thing? Um, I still am. Like, when I'm not having good days, I tend to I- mm-hmm. isolate um, so that they don't have to be... Because, like, Blythe, she's different. Like, it, she's a different kind of four-year-old. She'll go into protective mode. I'm going to take right. care of you. As a four-year-old, that's what she does. Like, even when I come home from the second surgery and I was really, really messed up then, she, I had this uh, recliner in my sitting area in my master bedroom, and she made a pallet in the corner of that sitting room and literally would not leave that spot until it was bedtime. Hmm. Like she would come home from school and sit there and be like, "Do you need anything? Are you okay? How does your tummy feel today?" Like that. So that's the mode yeah. that she went into. Um, with that, with Christian, I really tried to shield all of it only because I can't easily make up something mm-hmm. for him. Like with her, like, oh, I'm, oh, I'm all right. And if I say I'm all right a couple of times, then she'll take my word for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas Christian, Christian like, no, you're not all right. Like, why are you crawling on the floor? Type, you know, type of thing. So that's that's the type of stuff that I try to hide from. And and the the other thing that we do with him is just try to keep his life as normal. Like all the stuff that he's involved in, like he's heavily involved in sports at his school. Um, he's uh, avid drummer, so he's heavily involved in his music studies as well. Um, and so we just try to keep him like he he went on a spring break trip a couple weeks ago. He was in Puerto Rico for a whole week. So I mean, just trying to keep him focused on the things that he should be focused on as an eighth grader. <clears throat> um, like yesterday, even I had a I had a a real ill moment yesterday. And the kids were upstairs. I was downstairs. They never knew that I was having an episode, like ever. So that's kind of how I try to try to just carry that because I don't need him being worried over something that he really. There's nothing he can really do. No, to, to totally understand. And as fathers, there there come going to come moments where we have to, you know, our kids are going to see us in vulnerable moments, and you're you're experiencing that and. Um, how you and Naj are handling that, I think, is is a way to go in his situation. But everyone's situation is different. Um, so, Greg, I want to ask you, man, as a man of faith, um, ha- have you struggled with maintaining your faith during this time in your life? Uh-uh. No. Um, <laughs> actually, I think my faith was struggling before this. Hmm. <laughs> I, um, I, I, don't, I think that it has been a benefit. Um, and an eye opener. Uh, I worked. I worked in church for years, as as a profession, to the point where I got sick of all of it, and I was done with all of it. And you know, while I was still at times doing gospel industry stuff from time to time, I really wasn't heavily involved in church. And I think during that period, my faith struggled because. 
I guess my belief system was so intertwined with the process of working for church, going to church, serving in church, like all that stuff. Like, what is my spiritual walk if you if you strip all of that away? Mm-hmm. Um, and I came to the realization that it wasn't a whole whole lot left. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, once you took away the titles that I held. Um, and so this piece, I think, has allowed me to come back and to see who I am really from a spiritual angle, um, see God more clearly, see what it is that he wants for me to do a little more clearly without it being so laden with me. Yeah. Was there a moment where where it kind of hit you and say, okay, I get it. I see I see what's going on now. Yeah. Yeah. Um I think I had a few of them. It didn't it didn't hit right away. Um I would say I would say during the period where I wasn't getting better. Mhm. And it was, that was kind of a really hard, because I would like wake up out of REM sleep screaming because I was having abdominal pains that were just that sharp. Wow. <laughs> like waking up out of your sleep <laughs> like that. Yeah. And so I started to see really quick. I was like, all right, God, I think I see what it is that you were trying to get me to see all that time. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, I think, you know, the ministry work that I would have to do from here on out would be a little focused a little bit differently. And one to that point, man, one of the things that I have admired from afar is, is your willingness to, to be open about your journey with cancer. Um, not, not everyone is like that. You know, they, you know, right. I know I personally, I don't think I would be that, that, that public about it. Man, I want to kind of go in my shell. I know other people want to go, go into hiding. So what has been the motivation by, behind sharing your story essentially for, for everyone to see and be a part of? I never ever felt like my life was about me. Like I've never, I, I don't think I've ever felt like my life was about me. From the time that I can remember, like being used by God to do anything in particular, I got okay. If you want to say as it relates, you know, to music, it was always about somebody else. And I'm like, well, the way that everything happened with me, yeah, I had the information about my family history and all that, but it's like technically speaking, the doctors were like all dumbfounded because they were like this, like. Even when they saw the mask, they were like, all right, well, no, we don't think that this is that. Mm-hmm. That's where all the doctors were with it. And for it to end up being that, and then like even other things happening after that, that was like, this shouldn't be happening for, you know, I know that this is, this story is about me sharing it, putting it out there because black men in general, we don't do right. Like mm-hmm. as, it, as it relates to health. You know, I mean, we don't really, if I wasn't married, I probably would be doing terrible. Yeah. You know, I, I think most of us that, we, that that are on top of our health stuff, are on top of our health stuff because our wives kind of, you know, lean in. On Almost it. definitely. You know, and so um, 
I'm glad I got a good one that that, that can lean in <laughs> on mm-hmm. it and then make sure that I do the stuff that I'm supposed to, that I'm supposed to do. No, I give I give all credit to Sharice to for helping me change my diet a few years ago because you know I was on that path to some some from very bad uh, health health problems had I not changed the way I was eating, changed the way I was looking at health, and I think um, black men and their fathers we need to to be mindful of that. So to that point, man, how has this period in your life made you reexamine health and wellness? Um, it has. And and that part is a is a journey. I mean, you know, it, it, that's a developing, that's a work in, in progress. I guess because you know, I, I like food, um, and I don't necessarily do it the most healthy way. I was gonna say, man, because we eat good when we're at the house. We're at our place. I, 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 when I'm when I'm cooking, I don't. I'm not thinking about uh, you know how many calories. Give me all the butter that yeah. you got in the <laughs> and we gonna just do what we got to do. <laughs> what yeah. we got to do. But no, um, I say watching. All right, so I didn't really watch my father's decline because at the time that he was diagnosed, I was in Virginia and he was in Philly. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Colon cancer, period, is something that is 100% uh, preventable. And if it's caught in the right stages, it's curable. And so I think the lesson that I learned as it relates to health and wellness through watching him was do not procrastinate. Do what you're supposed to do and get it found out. Because, like, honestly, if I had waited, like, even, like, another year, I'd have possibly been stage four by then. Mm-hmm. At the rate that it was going, um, you know, for me. And so they also think that I have like a genetic thing, whereas there's a there's a, a mechanism in, in the system, apparently, where when cells go rogue to turn into cancer, the other cells around them kill that cell off. In this particular genetic syndrome, that defense response does not occur. And so that is the reason why they think that I went from a clean screen to stage three in five years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when people hear cancer, Greg, I mean, the reality is a lot of people, you know, go automatically to the worst possible outcome. Um, right. How have you avoided um, your mind from, or if you haven't, from going, going in that direction? Um, I have not once have I thought about dying. So that thought has never entered my mind. Um, because I knew what my prognosis was like, all right, so yeah, I'm stage three, but what makes a person stage three is if there's any lymph node, uh, activity or any cancer cells active in a lymph node anywhere. And so when they did my first surgery, they removed my whole ascending colon and then 37 lymph nodes they took out mm-hmm. with that. And out of the 37, only one lymph node was positive. So, like, I just made it into stage three, okay. technically. So, that's like the best, that's the best prognosis or the best diagnosis. If you're going to be stage three, you can't be a better stage three than the one I That's am. great. That's great. Um, so, that was good. It, but when things started to like go awry, 
then it started to make me like question because it's like, all right, well, the first surgery was supposed to go without a hitch and I ended up with E. coli, <laughs> you know, and now I have, I have to have a second surgery. So like the first surgery was laparoscopic. So that's minimally invasive. Most people like know what that, what that is. But then the second surgery had to be open. So now I have to have like the full zipper going down the front, like the whole thing. So it's just like a lot. And so while I kept in good spirits and I never thought that I was going to die, I started to kind of lose faith in the fact I I, I wasn't going to start taking for granted that everything was just going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Because if it was, then it would have been all right the first time. Right. You know, and so like that's kind of how your faith gets shaken a little bit. Um, but I still never, my mind was never went to like, oh, all right, well, let me start writing out a will. Like, I, you know, I, I never, you know, granted, we all should have that anyway, but you know, I never, I never went there because I know most, a lot of people, when they hear cancer, they automatically think, you know, playing your funeral. And that's not, that's not really, you know, accurate way to So, so where, where are you now? Like, how would you describe how you are now, what, what stage, I mean, kind of take us through that a little bit. So where I am now, technically speaking, I have, there, there are no cancer cells that can be seen in my system. But because I had lymph node activity and because of my family history and because they also think that I have this genetic syndrome, the, the chemo was kind of like, they were not really budging off of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm in treatment, what they call ad- adjuvant therapy, which is like which the, the chemo that you get post-surgery. I can't remember the other term for the other one where there's some chemos that, that, that are given prior to surgery so that they can shrink the masses to more effectively remove them. Uh, for me, it was adjuvant therapy. So they took the mass out and then started to do chemo to kill any microscopic cells that may be in any other lymph nodes that they can't see. Well, man, we are, we are so happy and thankful to hear that you're on, on the men. Those of us who who know you and been praying for you, that hope things continue to to work out for you, man. But a couple more questions for you. What have you learned about yourself personally, you know, as, as a husband and especially for this podcast's purposes as a, as a father from, from this ordeal? Yeah, I need my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that I think that's probably the, that's probably the biggest lesson that I learned. Not that I didn't think I did before, because mm-hmm. I knew I know I did. But um, this situation, like I can honestly say that if it had to hit my house, that it hit my house the way it was supposed to. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think that I could do what she's done. Right. And I don't think I could be who she's been and had to be to so many people Yeah, <laughs> through all of this. Like, I just, I don't, I feel like that if it was her going through it and me having to keep everything afloat, that this house would be in complete and total shambles. Yeah, And so I know that I like what, the value that she brings to our union and our unit, our family unit is it can't even really be put into words. Cause I can't even imagine having to function as a parent, be by my bedside in the hospital, still be the executive that she is at work 
and make all those hats make all those hats like work all at the same time. I don't I don't I don't believe that most men have the ability to do that. Hmm. To to me that all that that level of multitasking sounds like a woman's job to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I say that with the utmost respect only because I just ain't ever seen another man do it. Well, you know, they say when we get a, a the simple head cold, you know, we fold up like a lawn chair, man. We don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the tr- and that, and that is the truth. Honestly, I, part of part of my thing with this whole thing was to try and not fall up, fall completely to pieces in front of her. <laughs> um <laughs> you know, uh but after a while it was just like this is no. Like this is who God has given me to fall to pieces in front of. And, and it's it's forced you to be to be vulnerable, which a lot of us you know, don't willingly do. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Once you've been in the hospital and your wife has seen the absolute worst that can possibly happen to you, like with people coming along doing stuff to you and everything, once once your wife has had to wipe your ass, pretty much all fits <laughs> off. Yeah, it ain't, ain't yeah. no pride yeah. at that point. Yeah, all that tough guy stuff goes out the window, man. It's it it doesn't ex- it doesn't exist anymore because like you, at that at that point whatever is important is what's in that moment. Well, shout out to Najma for being an amazing wife and a good great friend to our family. Yeah. You know, we all appreciate her. Last question, Greg. I really appreciate you coming on, man, and, and being open and being vulnerable with us. You know, you're currently you call you call your fight the fixed fight. You know, that's that's what you've quote unquote yeah. branded it branded it as. Um, so, what what advice what? would you give other fathers? who are in their own fight, whether it's health related, whether it's finances, whether it's personal issues, how would you, you know, counsel them to, to get through this uh, tough period in life? Oh, link up, <laughs> link up spiritually. That, that That's honestly, you know, and then not, not, not only that, but make sure you're not linked up with folk who aren't spiritual or, or folk who, who don't bring any value or benefit to who you are as an individual, because those those people will only lead you down a wrong road. Is 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 how is how I see it. Um, if you have if you're surrounded with folk who are like minded and who are fighting with you spiritually, you know, because honestly, this whole this whole thing for me, the fixed fight village, <clears throat> honestly. I give them all the credit for how well I've done, mm-hmm. you know, because I like I I can't physically count how many people are praying for me on a given day. Yeah, and so I've got that. That's got to count for a whole whole lot, you know. On the days where I probably should be, where I, because honestly, the chemo thing, I've had my symptoms. Don't get me wrong, and I have my bad days. But like the things like the nausea and the throwing up and stuff like that's not something that I experience every day. But I know people who that is their constant. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I've got to attribute a lot of my symptoms being minimized to the fact that there are just bands and bands of people out there praying for me. Well, Sharice and I definitely are, man. We continue to do so. 
Um, before I let you go, man, I want you to plug, plug whatever you have going on. I know you're humble, but I want people who are not familiar with you to plug your music. Where can they find it? Because it's still on iTunes, but I still listen to it. So let, let the people know how they can reach you. All right. This old, old record. <laughs> They were released like in what 2007. Oh, god, I mean, this is Greg Robertson's Soul for Celebration. The title of the record is Soul for Worship, so that's on iTunes. Um, that, that can be gotten. And then there was a single that was released, what maybe back in 2013, I think, maybe, uh, called what was it called? Goodness. That is crazy. I can't remember a song I wrote and produced and recorded. Ah. All right, so we're going to blame this on Chemo Brain because that's real too. Um, (laughs) Ah, what is the name of the song? Well, anyway, if you just take go to iTunes and type in Greg Roberts, you'll see that single too. (laughs) You'll see that single too. Uh, What's coming down the pipe? Um... There, we recorded a record uh, some years ago and kind of just put it on a shelf. Never, rec- never released it. And I have a team of stellar award-winning producers that uh, Grammy-nominated producers that are working on this single that we're coming out with. I believe by the summer, it's actually a remake of Woman of Reverend Ernest Davis Jr.'s Wilmington Chester Mass Choir's rendition of "Stand Still Until His Will Is Clear." We like re-recorded that, okay, and uh, we put Melanie Daniels from New York on it. Um, anybody who doesn't, Melanie Daniels is a name that gospel industry people know, but a lot of um, your, g- your general public, a lot of them don't know her if they don't know gospel. But for years. Melanie Daniels was the vocal coordinator for Mariah Carey. So like during Mariah Carey's heyday, uh, every background vocal that was ever recorded or put out on stage on a tour, Melanie Daniels was responsible for that work. Um, And honestly, if you listen to a lot of the Mariah Carey background vocals on a lot of the most popular songs, the tonal quality that you'll hear those background vocals is all Melanie Daniels. So uh, that's the type of caliber of talent that we have uh, coming out the gate, coming back after a long, long hiatus uh, from the recording scene. So we're looking forward to that and a couple other things. Too. Well, my man, we're looking forward to hearing it. And I want to thank you so much for joining me on the Fatherhood Podcast. Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. Big spice. I want to thank Greg Roberts for joining me today. You've been listening to the Fatherhood Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Jamal Hudson. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share with your friends and leave a rating and review on iTunes. You can find the show on social media at the Fatherhood Podcast on Instagram and on Facebook. You can like the Fatherhood Podcast page and you can catch me on my personal pages at Jamar Hudson on Instagram and Twitter. The Fatherhood Podcast drops every Saturday and you can Find it on major streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and TuneIn. I'll be back next week with another guest in the fatherhood. And until then, you guys have a great Easter weekend. I'm Jamar Hudson, and this is the fatherhood.